Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 95 of Drinks with Tony. Today on the show, we have Miriam Feldman. Her memoir is called He Came In With It, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. For this summer of pandemic, I have to say the books coming out are really good, top-notch, as we adjust to the shifting tides of life. Actually, this one feels like a tidal wave, but now is the time to explore the pleasure of reading books if you've been putting it off. And I just love that when, like, every say everything fails and even your internet goes out, the power can go out, and there's no sports to attend and no bands to see live. And those are, the, those are things I grieve for. But there's one thing that feels totally attainable and sustainable all the time, and that's a book and a candle. You just need a match and a book. And with and just and so much journalism just going down the crapper as news entertainment, I feel like the book is the only way to connect with the story and the human condition. Actually, there's also Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon Prime. Which, by the way, if you if you find yourself on Amazon Prime, there's a film I wrote called Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, based on a book, based on my life, directed by Eric Stoltz. But take a break from binging and read books. Read more books. Why do I sound like a preachy hippie? Hi, I'm Miriam Feldman, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Miriam Feldman. She's the author of He Came In With It. She's also an artist, mental health activist, and her new memoir is The Legacy of and for her son, Nick, who has schizophrenia. Hi, Miriam. Hi there. Did, we, I, did I lose you on video? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, there it is. There go. All right. I got to see face. I got to see face. I got to see reaction. So, hey. Hi. <laughs> Great to have you. And um, it's, it's funny that we were just talking about uh, having a book coming out during pandemic, which I hope has its I – hope, I hope I'm being optimist on it. Hope, thinking that people are going to buy books. Yeah, well, that's what people keep telling me, and I hope they're right. <laughs> I yeah. hope that uh, people are staying home and, and hoarding books. Yes. Well, I'm raising my hand, and I am, and I hope all of our listeners are and continue to. Um, oh, and, and this is – so I love that this is your first book that's coming out. And how yeah, old are you? it is. I'm 64. Wait, what's, it feel like to have a, what's, what's it feel like to have a book that's going out to the masses? It's fantastic. You know, I, um, everything's been so tempered by the world events of late. Honestly, I have to say, up until March, I was feeling like, I, I actually, I still feel this way. I've never been more on fire creatively. You know, I was a, an artist. I'm a painter, and that's how I've supported myself my whole life. And the universe delivered this story to me that felt like something I couldn't adequately cover with paint. So I switched to words and wrote a book. But um, to have written a book I, and then actually have it being published, I didn't realize how unlikely this was until I was already too far into it to turn back. If I'd known the odds, I don't know what I would or wouldn't have done. But I just blithely went into doing it and now I realize how infinitesimal the chances of this happening are. And it's very exciting. And I have a million ideas now. I have a million ideas for new paintings and for writing. So I'm ready to go. 
So um, do you feel like that creative burst is because the book's getting out to the masses or part of it is because we're hunkered down in kind of isolation? No, no, it's because it's just because it's opened up a whole other channel for me. Mm -hmm. And I was also thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to paint as much anymore, but I've got crazy painting ideas too. I can't, I'm painting like crazy. And I, um, I'm writing all the time. I'm writing articles and I've already have an idea for my second book. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I'm, I'm writing stuff down already. Now, now would the next book be memoir or would you go fiction? No, you know, I felt, um, funny about writing a memoir in the first place because in my mind I always thought that well memoirs are for famous people that people are interested in by virtue of who they are but um this story is a good and important story and I wanted to get it out there beyond it being my story but because it is a story of what serious mental illness does to a family and how we grappled with it and believe me i do not come off as any kind of a heroine you know I, i'm very honest and very open about all our weaknesses and faults and, and mistakes because th this is a life event that is impossible to go through in and of itself and then when you add to it the fact that it's um it's something that people don't talk about and people feel shame about I have never felt so alone and so isolated. I mean, COVID isolation is nothing compared to sitting in my house in Hancock Park in LA and looking out the window and feeling like I had this dark, ugly thing happening in my family and nobody else had it. And somewhere along the way, I decided, you know, a seed was planted and I knew I was going to do this eventually because I just thought if I had been able to pick up a book and read the story of this happening to somebody else, it would have made it a whole different journey for me. It would have made it a lot easier, more knowable. The isolation was hard. I bet, and and it's also um, you're you're, you're I, I I let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but your your son your son is diagnosed with schizophrenia, and then uh, what you're looking for is answers. Your whole life is changing. So um, how do, how do you search for how do you search? I guess when well, you know, mental illness, serious mental illness, is like a gale force hurricane that blows through your life and anything that is not securely nailed down is just gone. And so in one fell swoop, it was like everything that I knew to be true shifted. And everything that was superfluous or shaky or not important just was gone. You just, I didn't have time for anything else. Now, I also had three other kids. So it was very hard to um, deal with paying attention to them and taking care of what their needs were when I had this one kid who had a major emergency at all times. So it, um, it just shifted my whole perspective about my life. And it's interesting that, uh, because it, you know, I, I've, I've had some, I, I've had my mental illness issues growing up and they, I've had family members uh, kill themselves and also friends. So I kind of have a suicide narrative where I just like, where people, other people who have had suicide um, have been like part of the suicide narrative, where we just kind of nod at each other and go, 
oh, because there's like, there's really nothing to say. It's just like, it's still, it's still going to eat at you. It's, it never really goes away. It's just how we kind of how we just process. You got the secret handshake. You know what I mean? You're in the club and you know, there's somebody else out there who's been through the same thing and gets it. Yeah. and on the, other, on the other side of that, the people that don't get it are usually going, oh, my God, I am so sorry. I don't know. And those are the ones that just have no idea. And you're like, no, 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 I don't need that. I just, <laughs> you're cool. Yeah. You're cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that um, a lot of it is just being like now I've been doing this for 15 years now. And Nick's an adult and my daughters are all grown. And I, I you know, I'm an activist now and I have many friends who or in the same shoes as I am. And it's just nice to be able to talk to somebody without having to qualify everything and explain everything. And actually be able to, you know, indulge in a little bit of gallows humor and talk about, um, and talk about things that are appalling and shocking and awful just in a normal way because you, you just, you know this is part of how life is. And it's a great relief to be able to just communicate with people who get it in that way. Yeah. And then, and then finding that, finding that community and finding other people who have had your experience. Well, uh, did, what was Cause at the start you, uh, it was, it was total isolation. When did, when did you, um, did you start to find a community? Was there a moment where was there some openings where you're like, wait a second, this is, this is way more normal than I realized. Not normal, but I mean, you know, it's. Well, it is normal. Yeah. I mean, part right. of what I come to now is it is, you know, 1% of the population gets schizophrenia. That's a lot of people. And that's just schizophrenia. One in four deal with, one in four people deal with a mental health issue, a real mental health issue in their lifetime. So, I mean, that's virtually touching everybody. So that's, a, that's another thing where it, it is, it's just part of the world. And that's one of the things that I fight very hard for with Nick and in terms of schizophrenia is that we have this huge segment of the population who have nowhere to be in our society. Yeah. There's not a place for people with schizophrenia. There's not a mental institutions anymore. There's not a society that welcomes them. There's not a niche anywhere for them. Seriously, mentally ill people are relegated to the streets and the prisons are the de facto mental health providers now. And so I feel that it's so important that we hear these stories and know these stories and familiarize ourselves with these people. I mean, Nick's a human being. He's as much a right to a place in our society as anybody. And there is nowhere for him. And so that's, that's something that I, that I feel very strongly about. But back to your actual question, it was a long learning curve. In the beginning, I just started Googling, you know, Googling and Googling and reading stuff and getting every book I could get on the subject. But it really was kind of years before I ventured back out into the world as the mom of somebody with schizophrenia and um, connecting with people. The one thing that I did do right in the beginning, which was, I think, really saved my life and maybe Nick's life too, is... Somebody told me about NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and that's a support and advocacy national group. And NAMI has a 12-week um, 
educational seminar that they offer to family members and loved ones of people with serious mental illness. And I managed to stumble into that and I took that class at the very beginning. And for me, knowledge is power. And once I had, you know, they, they took you through the legal system, the medical system, the different drugs, the different medications, the different experiences you're going to go through, how to advocate for your kid, how to understand what schizophrenia is. And after those 12 weeks, I was ready to at least embark on it. It made a big, big difference for me. But I never went to support groups or anything like that. And, and the advocating for, for help, for, for, for help for mental health is, I mean, it's, it seems like it's, it's almost like you, ha you have to scream it at people to try to get people to understand uh, when, you're, when you're trying to bring someone to a doctor or, or try to get therapy it seems just like hurdle after hurdle after hurdle to, to try to get treatment. If you would have told me that this is how it works, this is the game, this is the map, I would have said, that can't be true. You know, it is so screwed up and so impossible to navigate. You know, I'm smart and I have resources and I'm also a pit bull when I care about something and I'm a mom. So there you have it. And even with those three things, I was just flailing. I mean, I couldn't get help for him. And, and, you know, you get caught in the crazy bureaucracy of the system and all the HIPAA laws and the privacy laws and trying to advocate and doctors who will talk to you. And then basically what I was saying before that there is nowhere to put them. There isn't a place for them to go. And um, it's, it's a nightmare. And I think, you know, I used to see, uh, I used to drive around the cities and you see the homeless people and the, you know, crazy guy in the corner talking to himself. And I used to look at these guys and think, where's their mom? Like, how, how does this happen? Where's their family? But now I understand it, you know if you don't have the resources and you're not relentless and you don't have some, you know, amount of means, it's impossible. You, you know, you can't take care of them. And now that I advocate and that I'm an activist and I talk to people all over the country, I understand how it happens that parents and family, they just, they, they don't know what to do anymore. And that's how these people end up on the streets. And it's it's a it's a national tragedy and a shame. Is is um as as you've uh, as you have gone through this journey, have you found that people, um, especially in the treatment end, go, oh, we don't have enough money, or re we don't want to put the resources there? Like, what what's what's the situation of why the treatment's not there? Uh, by their explanation, well. It, it doesn't even trickle down that far. Oh, okay. The resources are allocated and the decisions are made way up higher than the doctors. The doctors that you deal with one-on-one -on -one as you move through this are generally compassionate and care and want to help, but they're hamstrung. There's all kinds of laws and restrictions and things like that that keep them from being able to help you and there is also a lack of resources you know i mean there's just there's not treatment there's not a place for people to go you know there's a whole lot of attention in the last five ten years 
being focused on stigma and talking about and being open about mental health. And I think that that's great. And I, you know, I, I'm on the advisory council of Bring Change to Mind, which is Glenn Close's organization that fights stigma and, and, and does early intervention and education in schools and colleges. Um, so I really believe in that, but there's this whole other segment of the population who are the people with serious mental illness. And you talk to people like me, moms of kids or people, family members or people, you know, actual patients dealing with this. And the problem is there's no research being done. There's not research being done about schizophrenia. There hasn't been a new drug in 35 years. I mean, there's just not any attention given to long-term treatment and recovery from these diseases. So the way that the medical system works is mitigation. With schizophrenia, you have um, two sets of symptoms. You have what they call positive symptoms and negative symptoms. And it's interesting because positive symptoms are not positive in the way we think of that word. Positive symptoms are uh, symptoms and attributes that are added to your personality, like hearing voices, auditory uh, hallucinations, paranoia, um, all those kinds of things that are, that are, you know, in some cases violence, in some cases tardive dyskinesia, which are movements. Those are all the positive symptoms. The negative symptoms are the things that are removed from who you are. Motivation, uh, desire to be connected to other people, um, joy, there's, you, you lose the capacity for joy, for happiness. And so the medications that exist treat the positive symptoms, but there really isn't anything that treats the negative symptoms. And, um, and the way that the medical profession looks at it is they just want to medicate these people to the point where they're not a problem for society. And they don't care if they give you back a zombie and say, here, take home your zombie. They just basically take them to the point where those positive symptoms are abated and that's the end of the treatment. And so those of us out here fighting for our kids are fighting for something beyond that because it's not okay with me that rendering him a zombie is considered a success. That's not a success. He doesn't have a life and there is possibility for so much more than that. It's just difficult and expensive. But we can't just give up on these people. You know, it's like, I always say, it's like, if you, if you, it's like if you had a person who had some sort of bone cancer and had to have a leg amputated, and you amputate the leg and you uh, let that heal up and you send them home and you put them in a chair and you let them sit in a dark apartment. Well, the medical profession doesn't approach it that way. They give him a wheelchair. They give him a prosthetic leg. They give him physical therapy. They give him counseling you know, emotional counseling for dealing with having lost the leg. They give them all those things. And yet somebody with a mental illness that basically is like severed a leg in the sense that it's removed your personality from you, your desire to live from you. They just send them home to sit in a dark apartment for the rest of their life. It's appalling. Yeah, it is. Are there any, are there any countries that are like ahead of the game on this? Like, is, are, is there other outside of the United States, or is there a, like an actively moving forward with better treatment plans? Yeah, there are some. Um, one thing is actually, 
if you wanted to time travel, in the past, I think that cultures were much more supportive, certainly ancient cultures, but uh, cultures are all along the way of accepting and embracing these people. I mean, in ancient cultures, people with schizophrenia were probably the ones who were the shamans or who were, you know, the, the sons of God and things like that, you know. And, um, you know, I, at one point I remember saying to my husband along the way, you know how they say how it seems to be a common theme in people with schizophrenia that um, they're hearing the voice of God or the government's talking to them, but oftentimes God is talking, God has chosen them. And I remember saying to my husband once, wouldn't it be amazing if it turned out that that was true? And Nick really was this extra special celestial being and God was talking to them and we were the plebeians and we just didn't realize that he was this chosen being that was tuned into a higher frequency. I'm still hoping that that's true. But I mean, I think in, in ancient times that happened a lot, but even if that didn't happen, cultures and, and communities made a space for them. They made a place for them to live. Um, there is a place in Italy called Trieste, which is a village in Italy that um, has a whole different approach to dealing with people with mental illness. And they basically do what I was just talking about. And they created a whole different model for treatment. And it's very successful in the sense that it doesn't cure schizophrenia, but these people have valuable, rich lives within the culture. You know, I think in a lot of ways, if nothing else, if we would just change the minds of the people around the people with schizophrenia, that would be a huge step in treatment right there. So there's Trieste and there's a place in Belgium. There's a town in Belgium where it's not, you know, doctors and, and you know, a medical system set up like it is in Trieste. It's just a... Um, a tradition in this village that they've always taken in seriously mentally ill people and they take them into their homes and they live with them. And again, very successful. And, and it's also, um, the, the, I say, if I remember right, I don't know if they did it in Denmark where they had the, um, where they have a, uh, they have a village for people with Alzheimer's and dementia. And these people actually kind of have to go out on their own and they have to socialize on their own but there are parameters. It's not the nursing homes of today where you just throw a stick of jello at them and keep, you know, pulling at their bank account. <laughs> it's like, you know, they can actually get out there and they function very highly on such a higher level. And it's, you know, it just, I just, I just love the idea. It does take a village. Everything takes a village. And I feel like we're losing our villages. Oh God. And with this COVID too, I mean, the isolation, you know, I wrote an article for, um, publication called Scary Mommy. That's um, uh, how having a son with schizophrenia prepared me for COVID and the isolation because it, um, you, know, you have to live in the moment and everything is immediate and has to be dealt with right then. And you're not interacting with other people and you are isolated. And it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of correlations, but I just, I'm just waiting desperately for this fog to live so we can embrace each other again. I don't like this. I like hugs. I need my yeah. hugs. It's, it's so intriguing. And, and I think, I think this is another, um, we're, we're going to have, I think we're going to have mental issues or uh, just as a collective after this, because we're not getting what we need. And, and plus we have, we have to wear masks, which I 
implore everyone to wear masks. I'm not the other guy. <laughs> I'm like, please wear masks. But at the same time, we can't see people's expressions. And that kind of really messes up with our, uh, with our brains as well. Because we're like, oh, wait, there's people. Oh, I don't know how they're even, they're, I, I'm not getting any signals from them. It's, yeah, it's interesting. Though I have learned that you can tell pretty definitively when someone's smiling by their eyes. Really? Yeah, I, I really think that you can. I mean, because that was one of the things that I would walk around with my mask on and I like to smile at people. I like to connect yeah. with people. And I've realized that you can see it. You can see it because I would, you know, I see people and I'll smile and I see in their eyes that they're smiling back. I can see yeah. it. So that's kind of nice. I, yeah. I'm doing a lot of hands. I'm like, hi. Yeah. And then I'm like, thumbs up, you know. <laughs> yeah, we need to keep that human connection. It's important. It, 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 yeah, that's where, I mean, that's where pe people, can, uh, uh, there's, um, there's this guy uh, who wrote a book called Tribe, uh, and, he, and he talks about how even prisoners, they don't want to be in solitary confinement. They would rather be in a very violent and hostile prison block because they'll lose their minds in solitary, and they would rather be in a situation where their life is absolutely in danger, but, they, but there's but the mental processing. We need, we just need our people. Yeah. So badly that even we need our abusive people if we don't have anything else. And <laughs> well, that proves it. You know, one of the uh, one of the things I'm most sad about is, um, I've, as you know, as a new writer, you know, I'm very shaky about what's going to happen and what success the book's going to have. Anyway, but I had this great summer planned of all these tours, and I was going to go all over the country and do all these book events and. I was so excited to meet people one-on-one -on -one and talk to people about all of this. That's, that's a really, I mean, I'm so glad we get to do these things. If I had, didn't have the Zoom, I don't know what I'd do, but um, we need the we face-to-face. Need -face. It's important. Yeah, especially, yeah, um, when, when, I, when my uh, novel came out in 2010, I got to do the book festivals. I got to do all these things and meet so many people that I'm friends with to this day. Where it's just, you know, and and that's I mean not to not to minimize um, mental illness in the family, but also there's that first book that comes out where you have your author, like you have your author comrades, and you look at each other and go, it's that nod, or it's just like, oh my god, this is nothing like I expected. <laughs> this is so much harder than I ever thought it was going to be. It's we it's that look of just like despair, but our dreams came true, and it still sucks. It's. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, I have writer friends now because one of the things, you know, I decided to write a book. I, I've always had a knack for writing. I used to write in college. My husband has always told me I'm a good writer. And, um, and I took that seriously because I don't get a lot of compliments from him. And so I, um, so, but I knew I could write. And so I just sat down and wrote the book one winter. I just sat down. And I just sat at my computer every day for eight hours. and for several months and I wrote 370 pages or something. I thought I had written a book. <laughs> then I started the next step and I started educating myself online because I mean, I'm not a writer, I, I know the art business. So I had to learn about query letters and agents and how it works and what you do. So I learned all that stuff and um, I, I started sending out query letters because I realized I had to get an agent. Again, if I had any idea how impossible this was, but so what I did was, you'll, you'll probably appreciate this because it's pretty funny. So I, I read the tutorials and they all said, research the agents, 
and pick a you know, dream list of 10 to 15 agents that you really think you're a good fit with and send out the query letters. And then when you get back, probably all your rejections, read those rejections and then reformulate and then pick 15 more and do it. And so I said, okay, sounds like a plan. And so then I started reading the um, requirements and the rules of the different agents and they all said, um, yeah, send it to us. And, you know, in 12 to 36 weeks, if you haven't heard back, assume it's a rejection. And I started doing the mental math and I thought, I got lifespan issues here. I'm 61. <laughs> I can't send out 15 queries and sit around for 36 weeks. That's insane. So I just thought, okay, I got to play the numbers here. I sat down, it was, I guess, two and a half years ago or so in January, January 1st. I was like, okay, here we go. I sat down and I shifted from writing eight hours a day to sending query letters eight hours a day. And I just sat there like it was my job and I was doing it for someone else. And at the end of January, I had sent out 964 query letters. And this wasn't just, you know, blanket query letters. You know, you have to research each person, see if they're going to be interested in a memoir. And, and I just, that's all I did all day is send my query letters. And then by the middle of February, I got an offer. And so they told wow. the, the tutorials also told me, if you get an offer, offer, a viable offer, you can't fake this, it said. Yeah. But if you get a real offer, then you have to write to the other 14 people and tell them you've gotten an offer. And um, they've got two weeks if they want to move on. So I just sit down and write to the other 963 <laughs> people. And so I did that. And then when it all shook out at the end of February, I had five offers from, from um, agents, which was unbelievable. I mean, now I know, because now I've since workshopped the book with published writers. And I know how insane this was. Nobody could believe that, you know, this like grandma walks in the class with you know, my big um, uh, uh, manuscript and like, yeah, I wrote a book and I have an agent. And they're like, how did she do this? But I, I think I just, I just played the numbers well and it, it worked out well for me. And so we did that. And then it was another year before my agent sent it out. Because then she said, okay, you've got something good here, but this is not a book. <laughs> so then I had to hire somebody who worked with me and uh, taught me about through lines and, and arcs and different things that I didn't have anything about. So I learned how to be a writer. And then I took this big pile of raw material that I had and I turned it into a book. And then I went and I workshopped it with a writer named Lydia Yuknovich, who is a She's up here in uh, Portland, and she has a writing center called Corporeal Writing. And she's, she's an astounding writer. She wrote a book called The Chronology of Water, which is a big cult book up here, and it's a memoir also. And it's, going to be, it's being made a movie. It's going to be a movie. It's Kristen Stewart's uh, directorial debut. And, and so I worked with Lydia then in this writing group for a year and rewrote it again. But eventually, it's a book. That is so fantastic. I love that story on so many levels. First off, 900 queries. And not, not only that, because usually when you hear the law 900 queries, someone's like, they just did a blanket to whom it may concern. No, it can't be that. You got to just dive in and go, I, you know, I like what you did with this author. A huge fan of the yeah. author. <laughs> here. I feel like you might be a fit because of blank, blank, blank. It's just. Right. Yeah, it's, you have to really figure it out. Then you have to remember what you said to them. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. 
<laughs> I'm so glad it's not. I'm so glad these queries aren't oral because I would just be like, eh, I got nothing. I can't. I don't even know who you are." <laughs> but, they're like, "I'm the gatekeeper. You lost." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's also interesting that um, you you got the agent who really believed in you and believed in the story, and then. And then you got to, I just love, I love the backwards engineering of things, like just going for it. And it's, your, your manuscript wasn't perfect yet, but you had it. And they knew you had it. They read it. They got it. And then it's, you know, it's, it, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for perfection, but you do have yeah, to. It's been a fantastic experience. I have to tell you, shifting from painting to writing and, and then especially once I started getting to know writers and kept hearing all these cautionary tales. And, you know, my experience has been almost across the board fantastic. I really don't have anything. I haven't had any bad experiences. I mean, I, a couple little things, but, you know, really nothing. And it's, you know, it's a case to be made for ignorance is bliss. You know, I didn't know what I was getting into. And I'm a person who does go whole hog. You know what I mean? So when you when I tell you that I really advocate for my son, you know I mean it, right? But yeah. um, and so that was that was a it was just this is the way that I do things. But I um I I found it so exhilarating the collaboration so exhilarating. Um, and I've gotten help. I've reached out to like I reached out to friends. I I reached out to people I hadn't seen since I was a child. I went to school with Janet Fitch who wrote Wide Oleander. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, we went to junior high and high school together. We were friends. Oh, wow. That's great. A long time. Yeah. And I reached out to her and, you know, she wrote me a cover letter for my queries. And I, sh you know, she says, oh, no, no, it's something. And I guarantee you, I think it's because of that cover letter that anybody even looked at it. You know what I mean? It, um, it, but, but I think that, yeah, if you just go for it, you never know what's going to happen. And I think that having been a painter for 50 years, also, I've got, I'm very self-sustaining. You know what I mean? I, you know, being a painter is just, in a lot of ways, the stupidest career. I mean, it's, I guess, could be compared to writing, too, in that. But, but as a painter, you don't get a raise. You don't get a promotion. You don't get a pat on the back. You don't get any marker for success. You have to self-determine every step of the way. So I've been doing that my whole life, and I think it served me well with this book thing. Because I, all through all of this, I thought, okay, all I want in the world is for a real book to be published by a real publisher. I didn't want to self-publish. I wanted that. And um, I'm getting it. It's happening. And the book is yeah. going to be in the world. And so I, I just, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing at all. That's so cool. I love Janet Fitch. She's so, she's so gracious um, on so many levels. She blurbed uh, my book. Um, and, and, I, and I got, and she's on the, she's the cover blurb. And I, and like, even to this day, now I know, you know, now I know her a lot more in person, but even to this day, it's just like Janet Fitch blurb. <laughs> it's, she's so generous. You know, I just called her to ask for advice, you mm -hmm. know, and just connect. Cause I, and she did so she's just the most gracious, generous person. And then I also, you know, when I was a kid, um, my father's best friend's son is um, Garth Stein, who wrote The Art of Racing in the Rain. You know that book? They just made a movie of it, The Art of Racing in the Rain. Uh -huh. It's 
talk from the dog's viewpoint. It was it's a number one New York Times bestseller for two and a half years. It was wow. like yeah, one of the biggest books ever. I think it was like maybe in the nineties. But anyway, I reached out to Garth and I said, Hey, remember me? Our dads were best friends. And he blurred it for me and he's helped me and given me advice. People have been very generous. I mean, that's something that I would say to everybody in any field. What I've learned from the, you know, the other side of the mountain here at my advanced age is just ask for stuff. The yeah. worst people are going to do is say no. Yeah. And I, if well, you're even, not afraid, you get it, you know? Even Jan, even, well, I'll, I'll go back a little more on the Jan Fitch story. She told me she wouldn't blur my book. <laughs> and I, I was a little, I was a little pushy. So I told my publisher, I was like, She's like, I'm not going to blurb it. I got to go to Russia. I'm researching something else. And I said, okay, Marina, I was like, oh, when are you going to Russia? Okay. And for some odd reason, I had her address. So I just, I told my publisher, she's going to Russia, get a manuscript to her right now. Cause they didn't have galleys yet. And I was just like, get that manuscript to her right now, next day air. And they did it. And then, and I was just, and then I got a note like four months later and she's like, Oh my God, I loved it. I'm going to. Oh, that's so nice. So, so the first was no, but I didn't take no for an answer. Yeah. And you gotta be Johnny on the spot. I mean, things she's got a long plane right ahead of her. Get that manuscript. To yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you just go for it. Yeah. Now, I mean, now as an artist, I mean, as an artist, you're painting a picture and that's a picture. I'm, 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 I'm showing my, uh, showing my ignorance of of painting and art but you're, you're creating I call it a picture okay great you're, you're, you're creating it you're creating something it's also storytelling in of itself that 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 you're, you're telling a story on canvas or whatever the medium is right right am i am i, am I doing okay yeah, so far absolutely. okay great <laughs> thank you so what was there something from that that you were able to bring into your writing did, like how did you approach those first days when you're saying, you know what, this is a book, I'm, I'm diving in. Um, what I did is I just started writing. You know, it was very, um, because I didn't know how to write. I'd never heard of the through line before. So I just started, you know, I was concerned how much I was going to be able to remember because I hadn't really been keeping a journal or anything. And this was already over 10 years into it. And I wanted to go back. So I was concerned what would I remember? So I just sat down and started writing. I had about 40 pages of journaling that I'd, you know, intermittently done over those 10 years. Most of it was just drunken rambling late at night. When I, oh, I'll write this down. But it gave me a little bit of an armature to build on. And so I had that and I just started writing. What happened was I would write and write and write. And then as I was writing memories, would come back to me. I would remember things. And I didn't want to stop the flow of the writing, so I had post-its. And I would just jot down what I remembered on post-its as I wrote during the day. And then at the end of the day, I'd arrange them all over the walls, the post-its, and then I'd write and go back to the post-its and organize it. And so for me, it was a very tactile and very um, visual thing. Because my whole room looked like... Um, John Nash in A Beautiful Mind. Remember his workroom in the back where everything was? That's how, I mean, it was just on the walls and the ceilings and everywhere. And I would, you know, move things around and have different colors. So I did it in a very visual way. And, um, and again, having to sit down in front of a white canvas and turn it into a painting, it just teaches you, I think, a certain ability to bridge that first step. You know, you don't have that 
fear about the first step. You just sort of start doing it and see what happens. And so I think I was trained well by that. And then also what ended up happening as I wrote the book is then when I started editing it and started to get to the point where I could really see it from outer space and I knew what was in there, I could see how themes and motifs emerge and a lot of it was visual. You know, a lot of is about light and color and because those are the things that I notice. So it's, it's visual in that way. So I brought that into it. I, and I, I love that when um, writers come from other mediums, like, when, like singers and songwriters, you know, when they, when they move towards a novel, uh, you know, there's, there's, some, there's a lot that crash and burn, but the ones that really like get the narrative down, you could you could tell that their songwriting there, there's there's just a little bit of a different rhythm to it, mm-hmm. and it's and it's and it's just like oh I'm reading I'm reading someone who writes songs <laughs> and yeah, it's, I, it's just rich you know and and even like an artist it's like even the visuals it's just you really can kind of pick up on those cues are just so subtle but so wonderful at the same time. Well, another thing that happened in the writing of the book, which was really a revelation for me at my age, is I'm like when you said a picture, right? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, you can say picture. I mean, I am not hoity-toity about making art. It's just my job. It's what I do. If I was a shoemaker, I'd make shoes, you know, and not, not fancy about it. And I also, even though I have a master's degree in fine art, I've been to college, so I've obviously talked about art theory, but I don't talk about painting. Never. I really don't. I just, I think it goes all the way back to art school um, where it seemed to me that the people who were doing the most talking were doing the least actual art making. So, yeah, I just got a work ethic about it. And I don't like to talk about making art. Well, some are quite far along into the process of writing the book because I had already worked with Samantha Dunn and done an edit. And then I was working with Lydia and it was the final edit, workshopping it. And halfway through the workshop, Lydia said to me, you know, Mimi, you're supposedly this big artist. And I see on your Facebook that, you know, you're making art all the time. It's not in your book. Like, what is the deal? You have a whole, because my husband's a painter, I'm a painter and all my kids are painters. And, and, and she's like, how is this not in your book? I mean, this is part of your life. And I mean, uh, Lydia is very adamant about a life of art making and the importance of that. And I'm like, I don't like to talk about it. And she said, well, you have to talk about it. This is who you are. This is something that has to be in your book. So then I went back in. I started all over again with that and created the thread through the whole story of art making and what it means to me and to our, us. And, you know, Nick is a prodigious artist. Nick was on track for being a famous artist. You know, all my kids make art, but he was different. You know, I, I don't think all of them were going to be famous artists, but he had that. He had the thing, the magic, the gift. Um, and to see that evaporate was also hugely painful. He now colors in coloring books. That's what he does. He colors in kids coloring books all day because he still has to keep drawing, but he doesn't maybe want to access what's going on in his head as much. But um, so now in the book is all of a sudden I explored and discovered and understood and gave words to what art making is for me in my life, which is really interesting because it's what I've been doing since I could hold something in my hand, it was a paintbrush. I had a picture of me when I'm like 
I don't know how old, but I was still wearing diapers, standing in front of a huge blackboard with this big scene of um, castles and, and angels and horses. And it was like a baby in diapers. I mean, obviously, this is the driving force in my life. And I finally sort of gave it words, which was really a profound step for me. And I thank Lydia for that. Yeah, and probably hard. I mean, I would think it was hard at the same time. Back when I was young, back when I was a young buck, and I was like um, doing entertainment journalism, and I'd like ask songwriters, like, "How did you come up with this? How did you come up with that?" It's the last thing they want to think about. They don't want to sit. It's like I can't think about that part. I just need to keep doing it. It's. I, I finally got that after enough uh, dirty looks. Yeah. <laughs> I was just well, like, that's not answer, you know, and I mean, yeah. the people who do have a good answer, I'd be suspect. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, yeah. And then plus the cover of your book has a, a self-portrait of your son. That yes. he did, which is, I wish, just fantastic. It's, it, it, I just look at that and it's, it still guts me just to look at it. Was. And it's also, this picture is, it's a prescient picture. You can see in his face, there's a lot going on there. You know, it was interesting because... I was also told, and other things I was told is, you know, forget about it. You're going to have no input on the cover. They're not going to care that you're an artist. None of that matters. You know, they're going to do what they want to do. And then I ended up with these great publishers, Turner Publishing. They're one of the top hundred independent publishers in the country. They're out of Nashville. And um, they wanted to use his artwork and they wanted my input and they honored my opinions about it. I mean, like I said, I was expecting all this hard stuff and all this, and they did not force me to cut one word out of the book. They worked with me. They took, you know, I mean, all the things that I was told were going to be terrible weren't. Yeah. Well, you know what? Just a quick story. I, so we got the five offers, right? I got an offer from the one guy in, to be an agent. Oh, wait, no, this is past that. I'm sorry. So I had my agent, and we ended up getting three good offers of publication. And um, one of them was Turner, and one of them was a, another publisher, and one of them was a big publisher who publishes a lot of, um, I don't want to say who they are, but, you know, a lot of sort of self-help books, you know, books about mental illness and trauma and things like that but they had tons of money and it would have been you know it was a big advance and it would have been guaranteed they're like oh you'll be in all the costcos and all of this and all of that and as i was negotiating it i just had this nagging misgiving about it and of course my agent wanted me to go with them and um i just felt such a connection with the people at turner and but this was so much more money and, you know, guaranteed. And my agent was telling me, you know, leave money for Nick and you can put it in his trust. And my husband was all excited. And, you know, the morning of when I had to give my final answer, I woke up and I lay in bed and I was lying there and I was thinking, you know, my whole life I've been making compromises to my art to support my family, to gain success, to, you know, accomplish what I needed to accomplish. I've been compromised. And I'm not angry at anybody about it, but that's, that's the life of making art, right? Yeah. And finally, here I am. And, you know, I'm not rich, but I don't need this book for money. I have my support. And I thought, you know, for the first time in my life, I don't have to compromise. This isn't about money. 
this and and by then also it had become so much about being a legacy of and for Nick and having something in the world that represented him, that showed who he is and who he was. And that was so important to me. And I knew that this other publisher would screw that up. It would turn, it would become what they call trauma porn. Which exactly. Is, yeah. And I just, I lay in bed and I thought, you know what? I'm not doing it. I don't have to do it. Finally, I have a footing in this world where I don't have to do this. And I called my agent and she wasn't thrilled. And, you know, my husband was like, well, you know, you do what you want to do. But, and it's the best decision I ever made. This whole experience has been so lovely and fulfilling. And I felt appreciated. And I felt that who, who Nick is, is appreciated and honored in this in a way that it wouldn't have been. So that was a nice, a nice thing that happened. I love that story. And it's, and it's about going with your gut. Cause the thing is, it's like that payday, man, that payday is nice, but what can happen to your book in the process? Like you said, trauma porn, they, you know, they could even come at it with the, the marketing angles that are totally disrespectful to you and to your son. And you would have no control over that. And it would feel, your book would feel tainted. It wouldn't feel like, yeah, so it's just, everything so far has just been wonderful. And, you know, I'm hopeful it will get out there into the world and that it will resonate with people because I think it could make a difference for a lot of people to be able to read this story. I think, yeah, I think it'll make a huge difference. And plus people who don't have any experience with schizophrenia and don't, don't understand when they see um, people on the streets, you know, talking to themselves and it, it's, it'll, it'll give more of a human, a, a humanity Empathy. That's the word I'm looking for. We all need empathy. And that's, that's, it's kind of like the great way, the great outcome of writing books is to bring empathy. Exactly. And that will, I think that is a kind of thing that can help create the shift in the culture to make room for these people. Yeah. You know, I think it's important. Miriam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I could sit and just talk with you forever. <laughs> <laughs> Miriam Feldman on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book released yesterday called He Came In With It, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. Hey, have a great weekend. Read books. Enjoy the great stories coming out this quarter from very cool authors who have crafted their narrative for years, sometimes decades, and their books are releasing now. Support your local indie bookstore. Pet your neighbor's dog. Pet your neighbor. Just watch your hands afterwards, and I'll see you next week on Drinks with Tony.